All right, and please turn your Bibles, your texts, or the, rather your copies of Scripture to 1 Samuel 13. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 13. I'll be reading the whole of 1 Samuel 13. However, uh, one of the last sections we will be using for the next sermon more particularly. But I'll be reading all of 1 Samuel 13. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. Saul lived for one year and then became king. When he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. For Jonathan defeated, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrisons of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sea on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. The people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, and with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever." But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went to Gilgal. The rest went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, their matlock, his axe or his sickle. And 
The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the matlocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul or Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Thickmash. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Driver's training is a very difficult time of life for the parents, or so I hear. It seems like it's a rule that only one parent is able to stay in the car with their child without screaming as they drive. At least that was the case with me. My mother was nearly in hysterics the one and only time that she came out with me after a few miles we came straight back home. My father, although a calm man, still must have wanted those passenger-side brake pedals that the DMV cars have because on approaching a stop, he would sometimes slowly extend his right leg as if reaching for the brake pedal. I noticed this was always at the critical times of the drive, at merges, stoplights, things of this sort. He had a difficult time waiting for me to break in to trying situations. Again, understandable. I was a new driver, and I was driving his one-ton death machine of a car. Trust, when someone else is in the driver's seat, can be hard. Trust. A bad driver in bad situations will make any passenger uneasy, but a bad driver in an easy situation can even make the passenger feel at ease. But even a good driver in a bad situation will make it difficult for passengers to feel at ease. Even for excellent drivers at the wheel, there are places and times where a passenger would like a brake pedal in the passenger seat, like in San Francisco. I know most of you Texans would not like to think of San Francisco most of the time, but bear with me as I speak about it. I'm almost done. Some streets while driving in San Francisco, like Lombard Street, are so steep that it can feel like you're driving off a cliff when you turn into it. My mother yelped quite a few times at these kinds of turns into nowhere, even when she trusted my father was a good driver. Most of the times, when someone else is in control, in a bad situation, we don't feel safe until we feel we have some aspect of control. It's when someone turns down Lombard Street and we are the passenger unexpectedly that our trust in that person's control of the vehicle is really tested. In our text today, someone in a dangerous situation in the passenger seat really wishes that he had a passenger side brake pedal. Saul of Benjamin. It seemed to Saul that if he had let the Lord drive as he likes, that Israel would be thrown off a cliff and annihilated. Unfortunately, instead of trusting the Lord, Saul takes hold of the wheel himself from the passenger side of the car and ultimately sends Israel on a crash course off the road. Trust when someone else is in the driver's seat is very difficult indeed. However, first, things seemed to be going well for Saul. He had just had a successful campaign against Nahash, the Ammonite, 
He was just crowned king not long ago, and Samuel stepped down as Israel's last judge. In Saul's mind, he finally feels like he may have some aspect of control, like he's in the driver's seat. Let's watch, unfortunately, Saul's fall in 1 Samuel 13 from the heights of 1 Samuel 11 and 12, and his defeat of Nahash the Ammonite to the kingdom being taken from him. First, we look at Jonathan's faithfulness in the driver's seat, uh, Jonathan's powerful resistance against the Philistine invasion we see actually in verses 1 through 7, uh, and sets up the failure of Saul. Jonathan and Saul, after solidifying a guerrilla warfare type of army, go on the offensive against the garrisons of the Philistines within Israelite land. This is what we find in verses 1 through 7. Because although Saul is crowned king, that does not mean that the kingdom simply materializes before him because he declares it. The Philistines still are in control of vast tracts of Israelite land and oppress all of Israel at this time. For a true resistance against the Philistines, it would require a good amount of planning on the king's part. We can see this Philistine oppression from the last part of 1 Samuel 13, in fact, in verses 19 through 23. The author tells us that the Philistines had made Israel completely reliant upon the Philistines for their metal instruments. We find here that the Israelites had, so to speak, their Second Amendment rights taken away from them. Israel had no weapons. And the Philistines were very careful to keep it that way. The Philistines were so powerful in the land that they took away from Israel even their own blacksmiths, so that they were beholden to the Philistines to sharpen even their agricultural instruments. This plan is not too different than allowing people to perhaps own guns, but then not allowing them to have ammunition. This makes the victory over Nahash the Ammonite all the more impressive, I might add, as Israel did it with dull instruments that they had laying around. But now Israel, by, by this time, had no doubt plundered from the slain Ammonite bodies at least some swords and some spears for the 3,000 guerrilla forces that Saul and Jonathan now commanded. Probably this force was kept only to 3,000 because these were alone completely armored and armed, as Saul thought a fighting force ought to be, with the the things that they had plundered from the army. We see that Saul later actually puts a great deal of trust in his arms and armor uh, when he decided David should wear his armor. So it makes sense that he kitted them out and trained them for two years. Jonathan and Saul are ready to start their guerrilla warfare. As most guerrilla forces would do today, Jonathan and Saul start with the garrisons which the Philistines had placed within Israelite rather, Israelite land. And they start with the garrison that Saul, I'm sure, hated the most, the one in his native Benjamin, in the garrison of Geba. As Scripture tells us, this was like stirring the hornet's nest. Verse 4, And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. Everyone knew, on both sides, that war had arrived. Although it's surprising to note that those who blew the trumpets of victory spoke the general truth of victory, those who heralded got one thing wrong. It was not Saul, the king, who was victorious. It is his son, Prince Jonathan, who was victorious. 
This is the first mention of Jonathan, Saul's son, we find in Scripture, and he will be a major character going on in 1 Samuel. But the question is, why didn't Saul attack the garrison? He, in fact, had 2,000 men of the 3,000 that he had trained and kitted, and Jonathan only had 1,000. This doesn't bode well for Saul. This theme will come out in chapter 14 especially. Jonathan would be, in fact, a better king than Saul. This will come out in 14, so let us continue on with, with Saul and more on Jonathan in chapter 14. Back to the present, Saul calls Israel to Gilgal, the place where Saul had been crowned king just two chapters before. This was another muster of God's people to war, but the Philistines were doing the same. In fact, doing much better at it. They mustered 30,000 chariots, the mechanized forces of the day. An astounding number for that day, even if the author is probably numbering the men who were in the chariots, were sometimes two or three men, and not the chariots themselves, as he does in 2 Samuel 10.18. This is a gigantic force of mechanized military might. Along these chariots are 6,000 cavalry. Another huge number. But this is not even to number. The author doesn't even deign to number the Philistine troops in total. He says, the troops were like the sand on the seashore in multitude. His force is so large that it's most likely all of Philistine's allies as well. Israel had made Philistia overwhelmingly mad, and the Philistines invaded to finally crush Israel once and for all. Comparatively, Saul and Jonathan are not only technologically inferior, they are overwhelmingly outnumbered and outmatched in every discernible category. This Philistine war machine advances into the heart of Israel. Michmash is quite far into Israel, just a few miles from Israel and Jer- or rather from Jerusalem and Jericho. It's no wonder that Israel trembles to its core at this invasion. Verse 6. They saw they were in trouble. For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Saul's patchwork army trembled and was coming undone at the seams. And people were so hard-pressed that they were even deserting into the vast and deadly Arabian wasteland to their east because they thought they had a better chance of survival there than in Saul's army against the Philistines. This is indeed a very, very bad situation. It then should be no surprise that Saul is anxious for himself and his army, but he has actually done the right thing and gone to Gilgal, as God instructed in 1 Samuel 10, 8. Although Gilgal is probably a strong place, as it's in the heights of Benjamin, Saul went there not because it was in a strong place. Saul went there because Samuel told him in 1 Samuel 10, 8, that if he was ever in dire need or distress, that he would go there and Samuel would come to him and sacrifice and give him the word of the Lord. So it says 1 Samuel 10, 8, Then go, before, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Saul is hard-pressed because God wanted to test Saul. The question of Saul's testing is, will Saul's heart be able to wait? 
be able to be in this passenger seat in this instance? Or will the Philistines destroy them before the seven days are up in his own mind? In faith, Saul does what's right and goes to Gilgal and waits for God's word according to the promise that God gave him through Samuel. Although this is a very, very bad situation, Saul enters the passenger seat and awaits in faith the Lord's command at Gilgal. This is a very, very good sign in this bad situation. What happens here will decide his kingship and whether the kingdom will stay in Saul's family. A question that arises is, will Saul, Saul wait so as to listen to God? This is the second section. Saul does not wait, unfortunately. Saul does not wait. This is verses 8 through 13. So Saul fails his test in, the, in these verses. Up, up until now, Saul had been operating on Samuel's first command, that is, to go to Gilgal, which was his way of making decisions in dire straits, uh, was to trust in what Samuel had said, which is a very good thing. Before this, he, of course, had been operating off of, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. This is what Samuel had told him to do. But now in this dire hour, he goes to Gilgal and waits. But he should wait because Saul could not sacrifice. Saul is a king. He's not a priest. He must wait seven days for Samuel to arrive. For the singular purpose that Samuel was God's mouthpiece to instruct Saul. None could do the sacrifices but Samuel, for none but Samuel was prophesied to give Saul instruction in this distress, this test that was prophesied. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, though, as those who have been in dire distress in one way or another, that Saul has trouble waiting when he's surrounded by an overwhelmingly superior force. He is, in fact, Unfortunately, not trusting in God in this instance, and stops waiting for Samuel and grabs the driver's seat and grabs the, rather grabs the driver's wheel away from God in verse 8. But it is an understandable thing, as we will find. Verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering before him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul was done waiting in this very bad situation. He took things into his own hands and sacrificed when he ought not to have. He, as the king, had no right to sacrifice. But verse 9 is very clear. Saul, not some priest, offered the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. Saul could not wait. As his eyes told him, this was a do-or-die situation. We can understand Saul's thought process in this. He told himself there was no more time to wait for God to answer. But of course, Samuel came immediately when Saul finished sacrificing. It's very easy to judge someone when we are not in their dire situation, feeling the pressure they feel. It's always easier to say, he ought to have, than to actually do the thing yourself. We must remember, his circumstances were dire, and to Saul's credit, he did actually wait nearly seven days. Now, of course, he did not wait seven full days, or else Samuel would have done the sacrifices, not him. However, what made Samuel and God 
come down so harshly upon Saul, given this very bad circumstance, was that this was a test for Saul. It can be understandable, but this was a test to see if he would be a king after God's own heart. What made this such a horrible sin is that verse 19, God says, <clears throat> or what made this such a horrible sin that in verse 19, God says, now your kingdom shall not continue as a result. Well, because, as we go into the third section, he fails his test because, one, he called God's words optional in his life. And two, Saul refused to repent when convicted. This is verses 18, 8 through 13. First, Saul failed his test because he took the driver's seat and listened to himself, calling God's revelation unimportant or optional for Israel. Part of the problem was that Saul sacrificed at all, of course. <clears throat> Sacrifices were not part of the kingly office. This was the temptation of every king in Israel after Saul. They wanted to be more than just kings. They wanted more control than just what the Israelite king had. In fact, the kings around them, the kings that were gods in the minds of the people, were high priests as well as kings, as well as everything else. The story of Uzzah, the good king of Judah during Isaiah's time, shows us this temptation is throughout Israelite history in 2 Chronicles 26.16. But when he was strong, that is Uzzah, he grew prideful to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense, which only the priests may do. And leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests because the Lord had struck him. Uzzah the king, even as a good king, desired to worship God in a priestly manner, overstepping his bounds, disregarding God's word and worshiping God in a manner apart from God's command. And God judged him with leprosy. Part of the reason why Presbyterians are so careful to do what is in God's word for our worship, because he judged these things severely in the past. This problem of their overstepping is really far more than just the legality, however, of priestly office. The problem was less that these kings were stepping upon priestly grounds. The problem was, as is always the case with Israelite kings, the kings were stepping upon God's ground. It was the king's attempt to make the, take the wheel of control from God. Because in his own mind, he knew better the situation than God even knew the situation. In sacrificing, Saul's sin of sacrifice was so grave because he was declaring to all Israel that Saul could do better than God at being prophet and king and being prophet, priest, and king. Yet we must note that the promise of 1 Samuel 10, 8 was not first about sacrifice. Let me read it again. I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. The point of the promise was to receive God's instruction in his revelation in a dire hour, to have instruction from God himself upon this thing. God would get the job done, uh, or rather, <laughs> Saul expected that God would get the, the job done in these things, but then 
distrusting that he would, took the wheel himself. Saul decided he would be a word from God himself, and he needed no revelation but his own revelation. Saul attempted to take the driver's seat. In Saul's mind, Saul gets to make the executive decisions of his own life and the life of Israel, not God. Saul gets to make the difficult decisions in life, not God. God has had his chance, Saul says, by sacrificing, and God's word and God's viewpoint is optional in my decision-making and in my life. This is what he says and why this is a grave sin, even in a difficult circumstance. He says, I am the captain of my soul. The problem of not waiting upon the Lord is that instead of listening to the Lord, we listen to ourselves. Ultimately, when we do not wait upon the Lord and take things into our own hands, we say with Saul, we can function just well without God. Just as well without God when it really comes down to it, especially when life gets hard. What's worse, when confronted with this by Samuel, Saul, unlike Israel in former ages, as we saw in 1 Samuel 12, refuses to repent and call upon the Lord. Instead, instead, he spins his story and makes himself out to be the victim of everyone else's actions so that he couldn't possibly repent. Everyone else must repent instead of him. If Saul had repented here, I'm confident the Lord may have kept the kingdom in Saul's hand. But we look at Saul's response. Saul failed his exam because, secondly, he had not take responsibility and repent of his sins, verses 11 through 12. Saul blames the people's cowardice. This is the king blaming the people. He says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, his first reason. He blames Samuel's lateness as well. And when I saw that you did not come within the days appointed, Instead of admitting that he did something evil, Saul spins the truth to his own favor. Although we expect this of our presidents today, unfortunately, this is not kingly activity. Saul says, oh, no, 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 Samuel, I didn't didn't do what was evil because you forced me to do this. How often do we say these things to God? How often do we think these things? In verse 12, he says, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. You forced me to do this and offered the burnt offering. Whose fault is that, Saul says? Not mine. He is not worthy of the kingship because of these things. Saul has taken, or at least attempted, to take the wheel from the Lord, and by his unrepentant heart is not letting go. So his kingdom will fall off the cliff that he has directed it to. So as we go to our last section, Samuel explains why Saul failed and prophesies of the one who would succeed. This is verses 13 through 15. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 
think we hear in these words the great disappointment of Samuel as well. He cares for Saul, as we have seen throughout this whole section with Saul, throughout the whole story of Saul. He is very disappointed in him. The reason Saul failed in a word is he was a man after his own heart. That is, as we have been constantly illustrating, not trusting in God in the passenger seat. Instead, the man after his own heart only trusts himself and what his mind and what his eyes see. He refuses to trust the word of God. Why? Because men like Saul refuse to believe that God has their best in mind. Why would a man rebel against someone whom he knows desires to benefit him in every way possible? Or, on the other hand, they do this because they fear man. And they distrust the power of God to overcome the obstacles before them. Before him, he saw armies, men upon men, bearing down upon him. The fear of God would have brought him to trust in him, to trust in his word, even in this dire circumstance. But he trusted in men by fearing them. Here's the lesson from this scripture, in this section of scripture. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you faint in the day of adversity... Your strength is small, says the Lord in Proverbs 24, 10. Saul made his abilities and his vision and understanding his ultimate resting place. He saw God driving over what looked like to him to be a cliff when he was just driving down Lombard Street. There are many, indeed, mysterious things that happen in our lives, brothers and sisters. We must trust the Lord in these things. Do everything we can, just as Saul did by going to Gilgal, as was appointed to him, but continue trusting in him even in the day of anxiety, even in the day where we do not understand what the Lord is doing. Be firm in faith, or you'll not be firm at all. This ought to be convicting, brothers and sisters, as I hope it is. How often do we believe we know our situation better than God? And do not care to hear the Lord's view of our situation. We so often create in our hearts a God which follows our own commands. But God will not deign to be the passenger in the car, even if we tried to put him there like Saul. Praise be to God, then, that God has not merely sent a king, a mere king, to us, of a a mere man as a king to us, but the king after God's own heart, whom Samuel prophesies here first. We know, of course, that this refers at this time partly to David. But can we say that any man is a man who wholly is after God's own heart? That a man of such stature and ability as Saul fell at the first opportunity to this test of God? should give us pause, brothers and sisters. David is not called the man after God's own heart because he was better than Saul. No, notice that the difference was not that David did not sin. He sinned gravely, I would remind you. David was not under, not, and this is the point, the situation with David made his sin far worse. David was not under pressure when he took Bathsheba. What's more, David was safely at home when he sent Bathsheba's husband to die on the front lines where he as king belonged. David sinned not in a dire situation, 
like Saul, but in comfort, which is far worse. David took the wheel from God and let his own lust drive. At least Saul let his love for Israel drive his sin. However, the point is, not to make to show that Saul is better than David, the point is that what made David the man after God's own heart and continue in this kingdom was his repentance and faith. When Nathan said to him, you are the man, David repented. This is what it means to be a man after God's own heart. First, to desire our God to rule and to drive our every action. And second, when we take the wheel, we repent of our sin of doing so and desire the Lord to rule our hearts once again. Jesus Christ, the man after God's own heart, is truly the one who followed after his Lord's instruction, even to the point of shedding his own blood, as Hebrews says, but even to the point of hell upon the cross. The Christian is not create salvation like Saul, but to trust in God, his Savior, like David. To trust in Christ, the man, the man after God's own heart. He is the only reason that God accepts our repentance and the only king himself who fulfills the prophecy of Samuel. Christ, God's perfect son, alone has no reason for repentance. And as the word of God follows perfectly God's word. And unlike Saul, sacrificed at the proper time. Trust in Christ. Wait upon his salvation. Listen and let your heart be led by his word. And be saved not by yourselves, but by the promised king who alone has a heart after God and leads us to eternal life in God by faith and repentance. Let us trust in that great king and pray to him now. Our Lord, we thank you that you are our king, that you have changed our hearts, that we might follow after you. Lord, that even as you have changed our hearts, that we might desire for you to drive. That is, we might desire for you and your word and your actions to be our ultimate resting place. We thank you, Lord, that even when we sin against this great knowledge and this great, this great change of our hearts, that we repent because of the work of the Holy Spirit within us, that we repent because we are united to Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to repent. Lord, that as you call us to repent, as Samuel called Saul to repent, that our ears would be open to these things, that your word would be to us the way of life. Now, we would not trust our own eyes when you tell us what we must do and what is true. Lord, we ask that our eyes would be shown the way of truth, that we would look up into heaven and see Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, that you would make us to trust in the only King, Christ Jesus, the righteous. We love you, Lord, and praise you, and ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.